From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Orange County, California. Ronald Reagan called it the place all good Republicans go to die. But there's another history of Orange County, a history of white supremacy and right-wing power and of people's battles to resist, especially immigrants. LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano will explain. He's one of the authors of the new book, A People's Guide to Orange County. But first, Liz Cheney faces Republican voters next week in Wyoming. John Nichols will report in a minute. First up today, John Nichols. John, of course, is national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It is an honor to be with you, John, and a pleasure. Well, first, we need to say a few words about the big bill Joe Biden is about to sign. The Democrats are calling it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Paul Krugman called it mainly a climate change bill with a side helping of health reform. Is that the way you describe it? Yeah, 100 percent. It is indeed a climate bill with a side helping of of uh, some health care money. Basically, that's that's what we're talking about. Um, and I, the one other element that I would put on it is a bit of tax policy reform that that is important. Uh, we're going to start to attempt to have a minimal tax on corporations, to tax uh, the stock buybacks, which are really one of the biggest abuses in the game. And so this is there's some progress. Uh, what I would ultimately do, do though, is step back from the uh, you know kind of the laser focus that that a Paul Krugman or some other folks bring to it. And suggest something bigger, frankly. What we're talking about here is something akin to planning and to industrial policy, wow. uh, which is something that this country has resisted you know, for a very long time. But it is the idea that uh, those in government might actually put some money into things that will play out over the long term and maybe move us toward uh, not just solving some problems, but restructuring how we do certain things. That's what a lot of that climate money is doing. It, it is trying to create new ways to, to build things, to do things, to move around, et cetera. And when you combine it with the CHIPS bill that, that was passed a week or so ago, you, you really have a moment where uh, we're beginning, and it's very tentative, we're beginning as a country to you know kind of toy around with the idea of industrial policy, which we, again, should have done decades ago. Well, another thing we should have done decades ago, of course, is control prescription drug prices. Uh, and there's a little bit of that in this bill. The Democrats can now run in the midterms saying that they have opened the door to negotiating drug prices with Big Pharma for Medicare. It's not much, I have to say. A small number of high-cost drugs will be open to negotiation starting in 2026. Is this really something you can run on? No. Um, yeah, I mean, you can put it in your ad if you want, and maybe somebody will, will believe it. I mean, on balance, I think the Democrats are more in favor of it than Republicans. And so you got a little bit, you got some area to, to focus on, but it's not enough. In fact, it's embarrassing. Um, and, and it's embarrassing uh, how little there is on that issue. It's also, frankly, embarrassing that you uh, didn't cap uh, the insulin prices or the insulin out-of-pocket prices. Uh, for you know, private insurance and things of that nature, 
So there's a lot of compromises in this uh, piece of legislation. And, and we should be very careful about saying that it's the be all end all, the greatest thing that ever came. We're in an election season, right? So people are going to say that. Uh, the fact is, it's a very good piece of legislation that does some very good things. And uh, it came as a result of some very unpleasant compromises uh, with some people who held out for some ugly stuff. And, and uh, at the end of the day, I think the, the real takeaway is that we have made some progress on climate, which is really important. We have also seen the suggestion that Democrats, when they are in charge of the federal government, the White House and the House and the Senate, can actually govern. Yeah. They can do things. And frankly, in a midterm election year, that's probably the most important message. New topic, summer vacations. How about Wyoming? Most people traveling to Wyoming this summer are hiking in the Tetons or watching the geysers in Yellowstone or taking the float trip down the Snake River. But not you, John Nichols. You went to Wyoming to see Liz Cheney campaigning to try to hold on to her House seat in the primary, which is August 16th. The polls right now show her behind her challenger by something like 22 points. The New York Times says she has used the primary campaign as a sort of high-profile stage for her martyrdom, close quote. You saw her in action in Wyoming. Is this campaign that she is running about her martyrdom? She would hope not. <laughs> it's, it's, if you know anything about the Cheneys, they would prefer not to be martyred. They would prefer to make a lot of money and, and have a lot of power. And, uh, and, and nothing about the Cheneys has changed. Uh, it, it's, it's the critical thing to understand. They're still uh, Liz Cheney, like her father before her, and they're extremely close. Her father's now cutting ads for her in Wyoming. Uh, they are extreme right wing, uh, political figures on the domestic scene, uh, hyper militarists on the international scene. They're mean, um, nasty. Uh, they, they attack people uh, in ways that, that are indefensible and they always have. So if you, if you want me to come and tell you the Cheneys are you know, great and suddenly they're all good, I'm not gonna do it. Uh, and I'm not gonna suggest that with Liz Cheney by any means, because I saw the awful attacks that she mounted against Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and others uh, not that long ago when she was voting 93% of the time with Donald Trump. Now, with that said, <laughs> um, she has been a good player on the uh, January 6th committee. There's simply no question. She has fought hard uh, for accountability. She's been a very impressive and effective questioner and, and participant in that committee. And so the challenge in Wyoming is that uh, if she gets beat now, it's not that she's going to get beat because of the terrible stand she's taken on issues over the years. In fact, Wyoming tends to support those things. Um, it will be a suggestion that she's been beaten because she took this courageous stand to take on Donald Trump. And that's what makes the Wyoming fight such a big deal. What I will tell you is that it doesn't look good for her politically in Wyoming. Um, she is down in the polls. Uh, her only hope is a massive Democratic crossover uh, with basically all the Democrats voting in favor of a Cheney. That isn't going to happen. Um, and because a lot of Democrats in Wyoming have spent their lifetimes fighting Cheneys. Um, but uh, with that said, with that said, Liz Cheney has staked out some turf 
and um, and she is mounting an, an interesting bid that I, I don't think is reasonable to describe as martyrdom. I think it really is positioning. And I think that Liz Cheney is a consummate politician. She's aware that she could well lose this race. Um, but I think she's also conscious of the idea of losing to win and uh, that losing this race might position her for future political actions at the national level. Her lead opponent in the Wyoming primary is somebody named Harriet Hagman. Am I pronouncing that right? Basically. Uh, tell us about her and what kind of campaign she's running. Well, she's running a campaign of saying she's not Liz Cheney. Uh, and uh, in fact, if you uh, go to her website, uh, the first thing that she'll tell you is she's endorsed by Donald Trump. And that's that's pretty much what Hageman's whole campaign is about. She is a deep rooted Republican uh, on the right in Wyoming. She ran a relatively credible campaign for governor four years ago. And um, and she comes from a family with with deep political roots in the state. So if you understand her in that regard, She's a very credible opponent to Liz Cheney, not because of her experience per se in government or something like that, but because she's got deep ties to the Republican Party in that state. And it's important to understand that Liz Cheney doesn't have that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because one of the arguments against her is that uh, she's not really from Wyoming. She's an outsider. Is that actually true? 100% true. Uh, Liz Cheney was born in Madison, Wisconsin, my hometown, uh, when when Dick and Lynn Cheney were at the University of Wisconsin doing grad work. Uh, and I, I totally attribute anything good Liz Cheney has done to the fact that she was born in Madison. Um, but the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that she grew up in Virginia. Uh, she's from McLean, Virginia, and that that area around northern Virginia. And um, she grew up there, went to school there, spent most of her life there. Uh, and, you know, went back to Wyoming in the mid-2010s when she thought she could get into politics. And people in Wyoming know that. They didn't <laughs> see her knocking the doors, you know, for Reagan. They didn't see her, you know, like out campaigning at precinct events over the years. And I ran into conservative Republicans again and again who said, you know, yeah, I just don't know her that well. And even if they do know her, they don't feel that sense of deep long-term connection. That's an important thing to understand, John. If she had was born and raised in Wyoming, or at least had spent the overwhelming major, majority of her adult life in Wyoming, I think she'd be much less vulnerable at this point because people would say, no, I know, I know Liz Cheney. I know that Donald Trump may attack her, but she's good on this, or I fought with her on that. She doesn't have that, that kind of base of, of uh, infrastructure for her that I think she frankly needs. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's very good likelihood she gets beat. When you were in Wyoming, did you find any Republicans who are enthusiastically supporting her? Yeah, a handful. In fact, I did. I attended the Politics in the Park event for the uh, Republican Party in Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, and you know had to dodge the sprinklers in the park when they came on and <laughs> splash the candidates. Uh, and I was out there with a lot of Republicans uh, who were anti-Cheney and pro-Cheney. In fact, I met some legislators uh, who've taken real risks to back Cheney uh, because they see it as a battle really for the soul of the Republican Party in Wyoming. And because Wyoming is so Republican, kind of all the energy of politics tends to go into the Republican Party. 
So there really are people who are much more moderate. And then there are people who are much more conservative and they battle it out on a regular basis. And so those battle lines are drawn. And yes, I met Republicans who think that Liz Cheney's uh, win, if she could win in this election, is one of the most important fights uh, of their political careers. It's just that I met more Republicans who suggested that her defeat was the most important thing that that could be achieved. Trump has said he's worried about crossover voting by Democrats. Did you talk to any Democrats there who were planning to vote for Cheney in the Republican primary? Absolutely, I did. I talked to uh, Democrats, uh, you know, been involved in in politics and in criminal defense and constitutional law. People who, you know, who could come on on this show with John Wiener and have a a very friendly conversation who are going to cross over and vote for Liz Cheney. And the January 6th committee hearings have had a huge impact on that because they have revealed um, just how close we came to a coup. And for a lot of Wyoming Democrats, they have that I talked to, they've made a determination that they should cross over, that they that it's that important that that beating Donald Trump in this this battle, this proxy battle uh, means that much. I also met other Democrats who said they absolutely are not going to cross over uh, because, A, they have local races of their own that they're concerned about, or B, they're just not going to vote for Liz Cheney. Uh, but. I will tell you, John, I expect there'll be a very, very significant crossover. Uh, I think a lot of Democrats will vote for Liz Cheney, uh, and they will do so with uh, one of two goals. Number one is to send a message nationally, but also number two is to, uh, in this very overwhelmingly Republican state, to try and tip the balance within the Republican Party toward a more moderate position. And uh, look, I can't criticize that form of crossover voting when you're you know, kind of outgunned politically, um, using your vote as best you can to try and tip the balance uh, in a, you know, moderately more progressive direction. Although I don't think we could use the term moderate progressive for the Cheneys. Uh, let's say in a, a vaguely more small D democratic direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand why people have chosen to do that. What everyone wants to know is what kind of future does Liz Cheney think she might have after she loses this primary? Well, uh, let's begin if she wins it. If she wins it, she will be the giant slayer, right? Um, uh, she will be on the front page of every newspaper in the country and the front of the top of the news and on the cover of the magazines. Uh, and she will be positioned to do what Dick Cheney wanted to do back in 1996, and that's run for president of the United States. And don't doubt that for a second. Um, if she is defeated, um, then it's a much more complicated uh, issue. There will be people who still suggest that she should enter the Republican primaries in 2024 as the anti-Trump and that use that platform that she's gotten from the committee and from her fights against Trump to, to make that run. I, I don't doubt that she would entertain it because the Cheneys like to, you know, take their shot at getting power. Uh, and she's, this is certainly a part of where she's at. Uh, she's very ambitious politically. Uh, but she's also quite rational. And I've, I've been around her in, in a number of settings and seen her in, operating in a number of settings. Uh, if it's an overwhelming race, if it's a not doable race, I don't think she will. Um, then you open up a whole lot of speculation. Uh, she could end up in cable television, probably not on Fox. <laughs> um, but uh, she could also end up uh, running a think tank of some kind. Um, and there are even people who suggest that uh, she might finally decide to get into politics someplace other than Wyoming, maybe move back to Northern Virginia and 
run for something there. Uh, what I will tell you is I have covered Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney uh, for a very, very long time. And I can tell you that the, the culture of this family, and I do talk about them, I, I'm cautious about this because I do, they're individuals, they have their own journeys and they are who they are. But there is a culture of the Cheneys, which is they take their hits, they get up and they run again. Their, their goal ultimately is to you know, finish with as much money and as much power as they can get their hands on. And uh, I don't think a defeat in Wyoming would cause Liz Cheney to, uh, to stop grasping for power. Uh, she just find another way to do it. Now let's talk about the other state that really matters, Wisconsin. The Wisconsin <laughs> primary was Tuesday. The Democrats chose Mandela Barnes to run against the horrible Ron Johnson. In the past, you have called Mandela Barnes the real thing. Uh, tell us about him and, and what this campaign is, is going to be like. I've known Mandela Barnes for a very, very long time. Um, he is deep rooted in Wisconsin. Uh, his grandfather came, uh, came north to Wisconsin and uh, was a, a member of an independent steelworkers union in Milwaukee uh, in the uh, you know, late Depression era uh, and, and beyond that. Uh, his dad worked for decades as a United Auto Workers uh, worker at a catalyt on a line making catalytic converters. And his mom was a uh, teacher in the Milwaukee schools or was in was in the Milwaukee school system. And, uh, and it's his is just the story of working class Wisconsin. There is simply no doubt of it. Um, he grew up in uh, a neighborhood that was uh, a pretty rough neighborhood. It's one of the most highly incarcerated and impoverished neighborhoods in Wisconsin. And uh, he got into community organizing at a very young age uh, and was a very effective community organizer, ran for the state legislature and beat a, a conservative Democrat in the primary, uh, and then ultimately uh, got himself nominated for lieutenant governor with a remarkable statewide campaign where he beat somebody with a lot more money in that primary. It was critical to the Democrats taking uh, you know, control of a lot of offices in the state. So the political journey is a significant one. The personal reality of Mandela Barnes is, is perhaps equally significant because here is a young black man uh, who has done a tremendous amount of organizing and work all over Wisconsin, including in a lot of rural areas, and has always understood that the way to build the coalition is an urban, rural, working class coalition that speaks to people in Milwaukee and Madison, but also speaks to people in small towns and, and rural communities across the state. He's done that. Uh, he's got a base in that regard. Now, the Republicans are going to try and portray him as the most radical person that ever came along, right? Um, it'll make what they did to Barack Obama look like child's play. Uh, they're going to really try and smear uh, Mandela Barnes every way possible. But the fact of the matter is that he's a very hard worker. And if he gets out around the state and people meet him, my sense is that the smears are not going to stick because people are going to say, look, you know, this guy, this guy, A, knows the issues, uh, but B, also knows Wisconsin, gets Wisconsin in some fundamental ways. So I think it's going to be a fascinating race, uh, an important race. And it is, uh, you know, this this person I'm describing, this dynamic young candidate running against Ron Johnson, who is about as lamentable a senator as you will ever find. It's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This was great. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you.
time to talk about Orange County, California. Since 1955, it's been home of the happiest place on earth. In Anaheim, you know, Disneyland. Ronald Reagan called Orange County the place where all good Republicans go to die. But there's another Orange County, an Orange County with a history of white supremacy and right-wing power and of people's battles to resist. And that history is told in a wonderful new book, A People's Guide to Orange County. We're joined now by one of the authors, Gustavo Ariano. Of course, Gustavo is an indispensable columnist at the L.A. Times covering, as he says, Southern California, everything, and a bunch of the West and beyond. He previously worked at the late lamented OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and an editor for six, and wrote a memorable column called Ask a Mexican. He's also the author of the book Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, We talked about it here. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Gracias as always, John. Well, Orange County, just to review, has a population right now bigger than 21 of the states. It is big. It used to be dominated by conservative Republicans, but Hillary beat Trump there in 2016 and in 2020, Biden beat Trump in Orange County by a lot, 54 to 44 percent. But we're not going to talk about today's politics in Orange County. We're more interested in history and the places where history happened. Let's start with the most famous place in Orange County, Disneyland, and the happy day in August 1970 when the Yippies went to Disneyland. Well, you would probably remember that more than me, but uh, just because that's, that's you, you know, you wrote that great book, of course, uh, with uh, Mike Davis, uh, talking about uh, all of that era. But what you had was uh, Yippies, Abby Hoffman's group of merry pranksters, except a little bit more uh, prankster than Mary, coming in, deciding we're going to take over Disneyland. We're going to raise a flag and anoint our new king, Pigasus, a pig named Pigasus. And well, you can't do that in uh, early. 1970s Orange County. So until the pandemic hit, Disneyland had only closed two times for 9-11 and for this day where all of Orange County and all of Southern California law enforcement came to Disneyland to Main Street to crack down on the skulls of hippies and yippies. Uh, My favorite moment was when the yippies planted a Viet Cong flag at the top of Tom Sawyer's island. (laughs) <laughs> you got to conquer. You got to conquer, at least for the yippies. You know, they, Disneyland by then was already what it still is today. What, you know, this place of just such crass commercialism. And it's interesting what we know in our book, you know, along with my co-authors, Elaine Lewinick, I think Elaine wrote that one, and Tuivo Dang, was that Disneyland, even though it's such crass commercialism, you still have resistance there. You have the yippies. It turns into a place where you have lawsuits pushing for LGBT rights. In recent years, I think like 40, my colleague Gabriel Saroman, formerly of KPFK, he dug up the stat that something like 40% of the people who go to Disneyland nowadays are Latinos. So Walt Disney is rolling in his cryogenic grave somewhere. (laughs) Moving right along, for anybody who drives north into Orange County from San Diego on the 5 freeway, there, the, and did have done so in the last couple of decades, the San Clemente Border Control Checkpoint at, at Camp Pendleton is unavoidable and unforgettable. 
And for years, there was that unusual caution sign that we used to see alongside the freeway just before the checkpoint. Tell us about that. So it's technically yeah in Pendleton. So even though it's called San Clemente, it's not in Orange County, but it's they give it such an Adonai name. It's a border patrol uh, checkpoint. And they basically, when they want to, they could stop all cars and make sure that there's not, quote unquote, undocumented or illegals trying to come in. So before that, there was this notorious piece of California public art via Caltrans. It was a silhouette of a father, a daughter, and a girl with pigtails, a girl being pulled and then running across the board, uh, across the freeway because that, that's what you used to see a lot, especially in the 80s. And if you're not of a family of undocumented or, or of immigrants, you don't care about it. It's just for you, uh, you know, a hassle you have to deal with. But if you're someone like myself, a child of a formerly undocumented person, you don't want to be stopped ever by the Border Patrol. And in, and in Orange County, it took on the significance of, you know, it was a racialized place. Zach de la Rocha, the legendary frontman from Rage Against the Machine, a son of, a son of Orange County, by the way, graduated from University High School in Irvine. He says that one of the ways he got radicalized was one of his teachers at uni high used to refer to that or once referred to that place, uh, the border checkpoint in San Clemente as a wetback station. And that the entire uh, class laughed. And here's Zach, half white, half Chicano, saying, how disgusting is that, that we're laughing about that? that I mean, but thank you, racist uni high school teacher, because without your stupidity, we wouldn't have Rage Against the Machine. And the, your book reports something I had forgotten about. In the late 1980s, 30 people were killed running across the freeway at that point. Remind us why they were running across the freeway? Because they were trying to come into this country for a better life, just like anyone who's ever come into this country. But they were not allowed into this country without papers because of uh, Reagan cracking down on the border. Eventually ends up passing the amnesty of 86. So I guess that Reagan isn't that bad compared to others, <laughs> which, well, you know, not, not much to be bragging about there. But it was a real sign. So this Border Patrol, uh, not the checkpoint so much, but the silhouette, the Caltrans design, like I— I understand why they did it, but it, it got immediately notorious and it still lives on. They don't, uh, the Caltrans does not have those signs anymore anywhere in, uh, in Southern California, but they still live on this idea that instead of trying to fix our problems, you're just going to tell, uh, you know, the, the transportation agency of the state, like, oh, try to remind people not to run over humans. <laughs> the last of these signs, your book reports now hangs in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., next to an early printing of the Bill of Rights. Wow, that's incredible. I, I have a friend, actually, who ripped off one of those uh, Border Patrol checkpoints, so I'm not going to say what friend that is. But, <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. They're huge. They're imposing. They're, you know... And they just have it there as, you know, we never forget, never forget what this state, what this country uh, throws down upon undocumented people trying to get a better life. Well, the reason that Mexicans were coming to Orange County, of course, for decades was to work, to work especially in the orange groves of Orange County. The men picked the oranges, the women worked in the packing plants. Uh, a, a part of Orange County history that not very many people know about is the Citrus War in Anaheim of 1936. Uh, this is part of your book. 
Yeah, there's still an orange grove uh, near the corner of Harbor and Santa Ana Street, right across the street from the Anaheim Police Department. And everyone knows it. The oranges grow. They drop to the ground. That's that. But that was the site of this citrus war in 1936. So what happened was, you know, height of the Great Depression— 75% of Orange County citrus force, about 3,000 people, they throw down their shears, their bags, and they go on strike. They're trying to form a union. They want higher wages. All the, you know, because they're getting exploited dramatically. My, you know, my great-grandpa and my grandpa, they were in that area. They weren't part of the citrus war, but they definitely worked those orange groves. So what does Orange County decide to do? Again, you get all of law enforcement together. We're talking about the highway patrol. We're talking about the sheriff's department, police departments. Uh, get uh, you know football players from USC with baseball bats chasing around Mexicans, and they just crack down on on this strike. I mean, this strike was long forgotten in the Orange County history books, but it's a very important strike. Kerry McWilliams, a legendary labor, uh, progressive historian, he himself says that he got radicalized in Orange County, and in his book of uh, was I think it was Southern California country, the most famous one, or it might have been the other one, uh, factories in the field, he said what was going on in Orange County with the orange groves was, uh, and specifically when um, they rounded up all these strikers, was fascism in practice. Those are his exact words. He was there to see it. He himself writes about how he saw his former classmates from USC uh, you know, uh, making, forcing Mexicans around like they were Nazi guards at a concentration camp. And closer to the present, there was a lot of uh, direct action protest at another legendary uh, Orange County location, the San Onofre Nuclear Plant. You can't miss it when you're driving down the five. The construction began there, I believe, in the late 60s of a nuclear power generating station. And it was expanded in the 70s. And the protest movements against its presence also expanded in the 70s. Yeah, this is a place, of course, a nuclear power station Back in the days, put in a place where, oh, even if there's a meltdown, no one will die. Well, Orange County kept growing and growing and growing. So it's not that far off from like the southernmost city, San Clemente. But more importantly, it's nuclear power, nuclear power, power, something that its advocates say is like incredible and life saving. But we all know has a half life of what, half a million years or something like that. So you had a lot of people protesting outside the gates, getting arrested, trying to jump into the gates. And those protests eventually worked. The new, the, you know, the, the acronym for it is SONGS. So SONGS finally shut down last decade. And now there's a long, long process of trying to uh, disassemble it. And where are you going to, you know, take all those uh, spent rods? And, you know, that's it's still an issue that's happening. But you want to talk about a place where the insurmountable can actually happen? It's Orange County where, you know, you have a lot of – Orange County gets – all the notoriety for the conservatives of the past. But what our book tries to show is that resistance not only happens, but eventually, most of the times, it wins. It wins. 15,000 protesters at the biggest demonstration at San Onofre. Right now, there's 3.6 million pounds of radioactive nuclear waste (laughs) stored on the site in thinly walled canisters 100 feet from the ocean, This is a tsunami zone. It's near two earthquake faults and is within 50 50 miles of more than 8 million residents. I have a friend who's buying a house in Laguna right now. And one of the things that the seller has to disclose is that there's a nuclear power plant 20 miles down the road. That's part of the real estate law (laughs) in Orange County now. You must disclose the risk of living in Orange County because of the San Onofre plant. 
Well, I'm in Anaheim, so I don't have to worry about that <laughs> nuclear power plant exploding one day. Well, closer to you in Orange is a is a place that almost nobody knows about, the Ice Detention Center in Orange. It's called the Theo Lacey Detention Center. You know something about this. Yes, this is something that I, we used to cover extensively when I was at OC Weekly. So Theo Lacey is the name of the official jail in Orange County, named after a former, the first sheriff of Orange County, Theo Lacey. And as the prisoner population, as the jail population started to drop down, you had a lot of local jails figure, well, we have empty cells. We need to make money off of this. So let's start housing and doc, you know, uh, people arrested by ICE in our facilities. This happened at the Theo Lacey facility. This happened at the Santa Ana jail as well. Basically, you know, in Orange County, of course, being long a very xenophobic place, it uh, the, the process started off pretty smooth. But in the past, in this century, and so in the past 20 years, you've really had a huge movement of youth, of undocumented youth and allies saying, we're not going to take this anymore. Not only are we're not going to just protest anymore either. We're going to do media to expose the sham and the abuses that are happening in these jails. We're going to get with uh, like the ACLU and other lawyers to be able to do lawsuits and targeted slowly but surely the eradication of these sorts of agreements. So again, the Theo Lacey facility, a place of shame, but eventually a place of resistance that ended up getting to a better place for everyone involved. And another key Orange County location that has been crucial in the transformation of Orange County over the last 30 years uh, came in 1975 when refugees from the Vietnam War arrived in Orange County. They were housed when they first arrived at uh, Tent Village at Camp Pendleton. Right now, it's closed to the public, only open if you have military credentials. But tell us about the history of refugee housing at Camp Pendleton. Yeah, this was a place where, uh, you know, after the Vietnam War, after we bombed the country to smithereens, you have a lot of refugees. Uh, You know, for the Marines, that was a quickest place to land all these refugees. You had these tent cities, tens of thousands of people landing up there. And the idea, at least the ostensible idea with any refugee resettlement in the United States, they want to spread them all across the country for, you know, for reasons known only to them. Basically, they don't want people to keep the ways of the old country. But Pendleton is just down the fire freeway from uh, Orange County. Eventually, you had a lot of these refugees end up in what's now known as Little Saigon. So the cities of Westminster and Garden Grove, mostly, with also pockets in Fountain Valley and Santana. And there was one church in particular from Garden Grove, St. Anselm's. I believe it's an Episcopal church. But they helped out in resettling a lot of these refugees. They ended up in that area of Orange County because you still had a lot of strawberry fields. You still had a lot of cheap housing. And you also had uh, you know, a lot of opportunities for these Vietnamese. So because of this proximity and because of the organizing of these Vietnamese refugees, now you have in Little Saigon the largest uh, population of Vietnamese in the world outside of Vietnam in Orange County. And the other recent immigrants to Orange County uh, have been Muslims. Uh, your book has a wonderful section uh, on uh, a an institution, I guess we can call it, called Taco Trucks at Every Mosque. <laughs> this is sort of your territory. <laughs> this is my good friend, Raida Hamida. Raida, uh, born and bred uh, Palestinian in Anaheim, loves tacos, loves uh, her Islamic faith, and then 
here comes President Trump uh, maligning Muslims and Mexicans and specifically taco trucks or taco salads at every corner. So she connects with a fr- another friend of mine, Ben Vasquez. He is longtime board member of another organization that we highlight in People's Guide to Orange County, the Centro Cultural Cultural de Mexico, which I argue the whole everything progressive in Orange, almost everything progressive in Orange County in the past 20 years can be traced back to the Centro. And so this is one of the things. Uh, Rita and Ben say, well, how can we get our two communities together? Well, we love mosques. Well, we love tacos. Everyone loves tacos. So uh, Rita and Ben, they hired a taquero to make tacos for free. Um, and, so, you know, using halal meat, halal beef and halal chicken. So, it, you know, everyone wants free food. So you would have these Islamic services. After that, here you get catered. And it's not in the book because it was too late. But in, last year, Rida extended that to have tacos at a mosque's and free COVID vaccinations. So Rida is just one of the great stories of Orange County, just one of many stories that we tell in our book. The book is A People's Guide to Orange County. The authors are Elaine Lewinick, Tuivo Dang, and our man, Gustavo Ariano. Gustavo, thank you for speaking with us today. Gracias as always, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.